Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey everyone, it's Greg Stanley with the Collector Car Podcast doing our very first live streaming event. So to say this has been a Herculean event uh, is to put it lightly. It has been such a tough to go to try to get this thing done. So I appreciate all of you tuning in and this will be posted on Thursday as the audio only podcast. So if you were unable to catch the live streaming event on Monday, by all means go to uh, YouTube and Facebook and you should be able to find it there posted. Now we will have it eventually on Instagram live as well. I just was not able to get that up and running for this turn. So today we are all about Shelby's. So we're talking about the ultimate Shelby garage. That's what top 10 Shelby's would you have? More specifically, which top 10 Shelby's would I have in my ultimate Shelby garage? Uh, and we're also gonna cover a bunch of market facts. So we're gonna follow the market trends for Shelby's, mostly actually pretty much all the Shelby's from 1962 to 1970. So I do not have the newer ones in there. But we will go ahead and get started here. So a lot of stuff to cover today. We're going to dig into the market trends first, and then we'll go into the ultimate garage. So before we get started, I would first like to say thank you to Metron Garage for being such a great sponsor of the ultimate garage. Uh, Metron's been partnering with us for all of these ultimate garages going forward. And they are a really cool uh, company. So let's take a look. They design unique garages, condos, and other structures specifically for the auto enthusiasts. So you can look at their website right here. Unique car structures for the discerning enthusiasts, confirmed gearheads. I don't know how they do the confirmation process, but I'm sure we all qualify. Now, I will have to say one of them that I really love. They have eight different models, including two-story options is this one the fuel city loft now you can go to metrongarage.com and check out this one they're actually building one in progress where you can watch the video super cool garage you can see it has two doors on the front there's actually one on the back so you can fit three cars in the bottom and you have a nice loft or podcast studio space at the top hint hint guys uh, i could use one in my yard right over here now if you look at it from the back there's a nice entry spot there for the car in the back ideally i would have my 996 porsche in there as well as a 1966 gt350 mustang shelby mustang and then my third car if i had all the money in the world would be a 1953 buick skylark convertible so a little bit of everything there so again thanks to metron for being such a great supporter of this podcast now if you would like to be a supporter of this podcast just go to patreon.com and google or search for the Collector Car Podcast. Uh, thank you, Phil, for your monthly patronage. Really do appreciate that. And as I mentioned before, I am most active on Instagram, but you can also find me on Facebook, where that has Instagram reposts, as well as YouTube, where you can listen and now watch the live streaming events. So you can find me at all of those places at the Collector Car Podcast. Now, live streaming is about to get very exciting. We have a lot of incredible stuff coming up. Put this one on your calendar. January the 26th at 6 p.m., 
6 until about 7 p.m., we are going to kick off the Collector Car Fantasy Football League. Now, this is really, really exciting. So if you're into fantasy football, you definitely want to check this out. So instead of picking 11 football players for a college or for a professional football team, we are going to pick 11 cars from 11 different categories for our collection. Now, what's really cool about this is we have Ramsey Pot Potts, car specialist for RM Sotheby's, as well as two Haggerty experts that will pipe in and we'll go around the horn to find out what each of our car picks are going to be. And then we'll have follow-up events, including a Super Bowl a year from now in January, where we find out who won the first collector car fantasy football. So how do we do this? Well, we're going to gauge each other's performance against the Haggerty's uh, valuation tools when they are released. So whenever they have a release date, I believe we'll have them in May and in September and then in January, we will update all 44 cars, all four teams, and see how we are performing against each other. There's bound to be some live fireworks and lively discussions uh, throughout this league. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Now we're very excited for February. We have McKeel Haggerty. We're going to have McKeel Haggerty's Ultimate Garage where he gets 10 spots and he tells us what 10 cars is he going to put into his ultimate garage. And then in March, everybody loves Wayne Carini from Chasing Classic Cars. So Wayne will be on, I don't know the exact date yet, but he will be on. So we'll find out what 10 cars would he put in his ultimate garage. So a lot of fun stuff. Uh, we only do the ultimate garage once a month. So be sure to check those out. And as always, we'll have some other fun stuff happening in the other weeks. Again, we post every Thursday at 4 a.m. So if you are a gym rat, you can listen to this podcast while you're working out. Now we're going to move on to the Shelby market trends. And then after the market trends, it is time for the ultimate Shelby garage. All right. So Shelby's, there's a lot of stuff to cover here. And I will say up front that the information that I'm giving, the descriptions I'm giving is directly from Haggerty's valuation tools. And the first group of cars we are going to follow up on here or, or review here are the 1965 to 1970 Shelby GT350s. So by 1965, Carroll Shelby had already established himself and his name as the de facto American performance brand with cars like the 289 and 427 Cobras, which we'll talk about here in a second, regularly trouncing the competition on tracks and at stoplights around the world. So he turned his attention to the Ford Mustang, my favorite car of all time. I know they weren't built really well, but I still love them. Ford wanted to make this already popular pony car into a fire breather, and Shelby did just that. He started with a white 2 plus 2 fastback fitted with a high-performance K-Code 289 V8 rated at 271 horsepower, then massaged them with an aluminum high-rise intake manifold, Holly 4-barrel carburetor, tri-wire headers, and a glass pack dual exhaust system to produce 306 horsepower. So it took the 271 to 306. Let's see here. Uh, let's see, it could hit 0 to 60 in about 6.5 seconds. Not very fast nowadays, but extremely fast back then with a top end of 126 miles per hour. Now, all of these in 1965 were white with blue stripes or stripe delete. Uh, they also had the rocker uh, stripes as well that said GT350 and uh, Krager mag wheels. Now, there was an R variant, the rarest and most potential potent GT350 producing 350 horsepower weighing it weighed 75 fewer pounds and it had a lot of other cool stuff so that's all I'll say about that one now those I am not rating because there's only 37 of those 36 37 of those and they always trade for 700 to 1 million dollars 
Most recently though, one traded for almost $4 million. Why was it $4 million? Because it was the very first prototype one driven by Ken Miles and it was the winningest uh, Shelby ever. Its nickname was the Flying Mustang uh, because there's an iconic photo of it with all four wheels off of the ground during a race. And that is one uh, because of Ford versus Ferrari it hit the bell and almost hit $4 million. Now in 1966, GT350s came under a broader exterior palette with blue, red, green, and black cars offer, offered subtle body changes include functional side brake scoops, so the ones in 65 were not functional, and a special rear quarter panel window with a select shift three-speed automatic transmission was made available. Tops on the option list, this will be key here in a second, was a Paxton supercharger which gave the GT350 stratospheric power. Now, if you go back to my Instagram page, I have a picture of a 66 Shelby GT350 with two packs of superchargers on it. It is really crazy looking. It's not from the factory that way, but it's really cool to see that. So just a handful of cars were so equipped with the, G with the Paxton supercharger. Now, special production for 1966 included about 1,000 GT350H Hertz rental cars, for the Hertz Corporation, most were black with gold stripes. Now there are some rare ones. I think there were 17 white with gold stripes or a handful of red with gold stripes. I think there were 11 green with gold stripes. Now the other thing that isn't mentioned in this description is that there were also four GT350 convertibles built. One was red, recently sold, uh, I think about a year and a half ago, sold for about $700,000. A dark green one, which you'll see a picture here in a sh shortly, uh, was sold this last year for about, I think, $1.1 million. The blue one just went under restoration. We should see that pop up anytime soon. And then the light yellow one, I saw it in the early 80s, I'm sorry, early 90s, like 1993 in Pensacola, and I have not seen it since. So if you know where that car is, please let me know. All right, so now onto the numbers. So if you look at this, the bar chart here, the blue bars equate to GT350s, 1965 to 1970 in number one condition, and it's the percent change that did over three years. If you look at the orange bar, it's in number three condition. Now, for the most part, with the exception of AC Cobras for some reason, the number one conditions will always appreciate higher or depreciate faster than the number two, three, four grade cars. And that holds true here as very well. So let's look at these numbers here. I'll start with the winners. The big winners here are the 1965 to 1967 Shelby GT350 SC. Now this one threw me for a loop all of a sudden because I wasn't familiar with this in Haggerty's database, but then it turns out they started tracking the Paxson supercharged cars. So these have appreciated tremendously in the last three years, probably because folks realized that they were rare, they were special, if they actually came from the factory with a Paxson supercharger and you could document it, that makes it even rarer and high performance. So these are just below what I would call the iconic car, the 1965 Shelby GT350 and GT350Rs. So these have appreciated in number one condition over the last three years from 38.5% up to 43.4%, so a big gain. And the numbers for a number three car are not as strong, but they're still well into the double digits. Now the second big winner here, and this is a little bit of a trend you'll see here shortly, is the 69 and 1970 Shelby GT350 convertibles had, had a huge appreciation over the last three years. And number one condition, 50.4% appreciation. And number three condition, 
about half that, 24%. This is pretty fascinating. People seem to really be catching on to these cars. They were overlooked for years, and now people are finally appreciating them. Now, what's the difference between a 1969 and a 19 Shelby? You might be wondering, and I'm glad you are. They're actually the same car. 1970s are leftover 1969s that were re-stamped with a new VIN number. And the easiest way to tell a 1970 from a 1969, other than the VIN number, is to look at the hood. There's two black stripes. If it's a 1970, those were not present in 1969. And then underneath the front air dam, there is an extra uh, black air dam is down there as well. So those are the, the two ways you can tell a 1970 versus a 1969. I'd love to have either of them. If I had my choice, I would pick a 1970 because when you look at 1970 overall in the muscle car world, there were very few convertibles in 1970. So that would be pretty cool. Now looking at the losers on this page, there really are no losers on this page. Uh, the only two notes I'll say is the 1965 Shelby GT350 was a little soft over three years down 1.9%. They ran up quite a bit where they were trading all the time for 350 to 400 grand for one with an original engine. If you did not have the original engine, typically that was about a $100,000 hit on the value of those cars. Uh, and then the other one is the one of the four 1966 Shelby GT350 convertibles I talked about. Uh, they were basically fat, flat, which I find interesting because one did sell recently. So that might be in the next refresh of the data feed. We'll have to see. All right, let's move on to the next group of cars. Now, this is a typo. I apologize for this. It should state 1967 to 1970 Shelby GT500s. There were no GT500s in 1965 or 1966. The first one was 1967. Now, these are pretty cool. I mean, this does include the convertibles. There, were, there was only one convertible in 1967. That's in a private collection down in Florida. Uh, in the 1968 and 69 and 70, there were quite a few. So this one did not actually break it out with the King of the Road package for 1968, but I would assume that that was probably a percent increase over base, like add 15 or 20% if it was a king of the road and I would assume it's the same for 1970 and seven, 69 and 70 if it were a super cobra jet versus a cobra jet. So now this is positive pretty much on all fronts in number one condition. The big winners here surprisingly enough let's start with the 1967 Shelby GT500 up 20.7 percent if it was number one condition of 15.7 percent in number three condition. Now, again, this happened last time. The GT350s for 1969 and 1970 were up. It's the same for the 500s in the convertible form. The 500s were up 26.7% in number one condition and up 15.7% in number three condition. So everybody's really loving those 1969 and 1970 Shelby convertibles. The one thing that's a little weird here is the 1968 Shelby GT500 convertible was up 5.9% over the la in number one condition, but strangely enough, in number three condition, it was actually down 8.7%. So I'm not quite sure what's driving that. Uh, maybe there was some more of those coming to the market, flooded the market, the ones that were more of a driver grade quality. Interesting data. All right, let's move on. This is just kind of a snapshot. This is all fastbacks, 1965 to 1970 Shelby GT350s and 500s. And it just shows kind of what we just talked about, the appreciation trend for certain uh, certain models of that car, certain years. And then this one is just for the convertible. So more of a recap just based on fastbacks and convertibles, just differentiate them just a little bit. 
Okay, now let's go into the four GTs. Now this is where I have to read my notes again here. Oh, I'm sorry, I should have made some notes here about the GT500. So let's go back, think back a couple seconds here. Ford and Carroll Shelby already had a hit on their hands with the track-oriented GT350. And in 1967, they introduced a big block variant for their potent Mustang collaboration, the GT500. That same year, production of the specialty Mustangs moved from Shelby American's California facility to Michigan, where Ford could exercise more control and where the cars could, would be built alongside regular, quote-unquote, regular Mustangs. Shelby thus had little to do with the development and production of the GT500. No matter, because despite comfortable and convenient amenities formed deemed necessary, the cars were serious performers. Powering the GT500 was a 428 cubic inch police interceptor V8. The engine appeared in other larger Fords of the day, but with twin Holley four-barrel carburetors, it produced 360 horsepower. The fastback coupes were also were available with either four-speed manual or three-speed automatic transmissions. Outside, the GT500 featured a fiberglass nose and tail section, functional hood scoops, and four airside scoops. Inside, the GT500 trim borrowed from the Mustang GT and included amenities like air conditioning, power steering, and a functional rear seat. The buyers responded, and the GT500 far or outsold the small block GT350 sibling. All right, so we just reviewed those. Another note real quick on the GT500 1967. That was pretty much like a one-year-only, very a lot of special stuff with that particular car. In my mind, it's probably the prettiest Shelby out there. Um, it had some cool stuff, like the early GT350s had side marker lights uh, in the rear upper hood scoop. Um, it had some other cool stuff. I think even the bottom brake ducts were functional for the first handful of cars. Correct me if I'm wrong. I know there was a ton of changes depending on when the car was built. Uh, it was the last one that was truly overseen by Shelby, so that adds a little bit of value. And I've been told, I have yet to verify this, so if you have a 67 would like to verify this with me, I heard that it is much faster and much more of a monster uh, with that dual car setup on the 428 versus the Cobra Jet of 1968 or the Super Cobra Jet. Uh, so that's interesting that the 67 might actually be more powerful than the quote-unquote upgraded 1968 cars. All right, let's move on to the Ford GT 40s. Motivated, motivated by Henry Ford II, unrelenting, unrelenting desire to beat Ferrari on the track, reportedly due to Enzo Ferrari jilting a Ford buyout offer, led to a partnership with Lola in 1963. If you haven't seen the Ford versus Ferrari movie, I highly suggest you do. I hear it's not really that fact accurate, but it's still a great thing to watch. The British race car manufacturer had already used a Ford V8 with some success in their GT, and prototyping resulted in a 4.2-liter mid-engine alloy V8 race coupe sheet head in a fiberglass body. That's interesting. <laughs> Sheathed in a fiberglass body, debuting in April of 1964. It could reach 200 miles per hour and was a sleek 40 inches tall, hence the GT40 name. It looked pretty promising on the track, but it was ultimately too fragile to reliably compete than inner Carroll Shelby. So based on the success of the Cobra, which we'll get to in a minute, Ford handed the reins of the program over to Shelby in 1965. Due to engine shortages, the Cobra's 4.7 liter V8 was installed instead of the 4.2 liter unit, signaling the start of the Mark I cars, and the Shelby team won their first race but couldn't duplicate the success elsewhere. 
1966 campaign, however, was a different story. In the 7-liter Mark II form, the car swept the podium at the 24 hours of Le Mans. Now, this went on to win, let's see, the first and only American constructor to win at Le Mans and the first specific chassis to win more than one Le Mans. So that's pretty cool. They won 1966 and 1969. In addition to Mark I and Mark II cars, seven road-going Mark III's were built. Keep that thought with several uh, con concessions to practicality. Among other modifications, the Mark III's had a larger rear to accommodate luggage, a more streetable engine tune, a more forgiving suspension, and some interior, interior alterations that improved comfort. Five Mark I Roadsters were built. A total of five Mark I and Mark II cars received weight-saving modifications by Al Alan Mann, and several cars used a bored 4.9-liter version of the Cobra engine. So there's only 133 cars were built in production history. Today, the Ford GT40's legacy is undisputable, and its importance to American automotive history cannot be overstated. All right, that was a lot. All right, so let's look at these numbers here. These numbers are pretty straightforward. A lot of issues here, a lot of data here, but let's look to the far right, the ones that are pinging up a huge increase. Now, ironically, these are all the small block, the 289, not the big 427 cars, the Mark III's. So these are the ones that were mentioned that they were made for street use and only, I believe, seven, no, five, I'm sorry, like seven of them were built. So really rare. You can actually drive them on the street. They're not purebred race cars like most of the other ones. Uh, so there must have been a couple that sold recently to really drive these numbers up. This is such a small base. They're a little hard to grasp what they're worth. You really have to go to the most recent sales, the most recent comps to really have a firm grasp on what these things are worth. All right, let's move on to the AC Cobras. All right, back to Haggerty here. Carroll Shelby's 1962 Cobra represents the pinnacle of the Anglo-American sports car, which combined a classic aluminum roadster body, in, case, in this case cribbed from a 1950s Ferrari Barchetta with a tube space frame and lightweight American V8 engine. Shelby's donor chassis came from AC. The AC Ace heretofore had utilized a pre-war BMW 2.0-liter six-owner engine, which was going out of production. Understanding that AC needed a replacement motor, Shelby tapped into his Ford connections to use their lightweight 260 V8, also found in the Mustang and the Falcon. In the process, Shelby managed to get both sides to agree that the resulting sports car would be manufactured under the Shelby name. The overall package was dynamite weighing only 2,100 pounds with a 260 horsepower engine made it to a four-speed transmission. Top speed was about 140 miles per hour and 75 were built in 1962 and 1963 before the engine was replaced by one of my favorites, the Ford's 271 horsepower 289 V8, also known as the Hypo K-Code, found in Mustangs and Falcons. In race prep, guys, the engine generated up to 370 horsepower and the cars were quite successful on the track. Between 1963 and 1965, 580 Shelby 289 Cobras were sold in the CSX 2000 series. So if it's a 2000 series car, it's one of the 289s, possibly even 260s. All this power stretched the chassis capacities, motivating Shelby to re refine it with rack and pinion steering in place of the ancient worm and sector design. Key when it comes to the market results here. By 1965, Shelby needed more power still, and driver and constructor Ken Miles thought a big block V8 was the best choice. 
the big block, 510 horsepower, 427 cubic inch side oiler V8 that Shelby was going to use, however, needed a new approach. The answer was a much bigger tube frame that was five inches wider with coil spring suspension and flared fenders to accommodate the wider wheels. These things look really wicked. These cars were numbered in the CSX 3000 series. The rest of the package remained the same minimalist, lightweight sports racer, and with a huge new motor, more racing successes followed. Shelby built 348 427 Cobras from 1965 to 1967, though about 100 of them had the less powerful but cheaper 355 horsepower 428, 428 cubic inch V8. So if you want to unload your 428 because it's just not that fast, just give me a call. Both 289 and 427 Shelby Cobras are the apogee of bare bones sports racers and demand is fierce for these cars. They are one of the few blue chip collectible American cars with eager buyers residing the world over. So provenance is vital. Luckily, Shelby's records are remarkably complete with cor and correct cars will be accurately documented. Enthusiasts debate whether the sheer brute force of the 427 cars is preferable over the 289 superior liv livability, but either way, there is a Cobra to suit any taste, provided the taste is towards hair-raising motoring in one form or another. That's pretty hilarious. I've actually heard from a few folks that the 427 cars are not that bad to drive around. You can almost leave it in second gear all day and treat it like an automatic. Replicas flooded the market in the 1970s onward, and Shelby himself, himself used leftover original frames in the 1980s to produce the CSX 4000 series continuation cars. Keep that in mind. These cars provide a cheaper alternative for drivers to pursue, though build quality on the non-Shelby cars varies and the replicas tend to have lived full lives. So thoroughly research, thorough research is necessary. All right, let's get on to the numbers here. Now this one, there's a lot of ups and downs if you're looking at the three year and the one year changes. I will highlight the far right so the far right, the cars that have increased significantly in number one condition, uh, this is where it's a little different. Number three condition is totally different than number one for some reason. Number one condition, three-year change, are the 289 rack and pinion Cobras from 1963, 1964, and 1965. So it's small block, easier to maneuver, lighter on the front end, rack and pinion. Those are the cars that have really appreciated in the last three years. If they're in number one condition, up 12 Ironically, in number three condition, they're actually down 2.5%. All right, so the other cars that are all down, uh, let's see, the 1962 Shelby Cobra 260, so that's the earliest one that does not have the rack and pinion. Along with that, uh, 62, 260 cubic inch, the 63, 260 cubic inch car, the 63 with uh, the 289, that doesn't have the rack and pinion. So basically, if it's a non-rack and pinion small block car, it went down in value. Now, the other small block cars that went down in value, which surprises me, are the Dragon Snakes. Now, I actually know where there's potentially another Dragon Snake, and I was told by a Shelby expert the reason they're not that hot on the market is people want to drive these cars, and the Dragon Snakes, the way they were set up, they're not comfortable to drive every day or you know to the local cruise in. So I see that in all these negative numbers, uh, the rack and pinion, easier to drive, more enjoyable to drive, they're up, all the ones that are not, uh, and this is all about small blocks, are down. All right, now let's go look at the big block cars. So the big block cars across the board are up in number one and number three condition for the most part. Let's look at some of these 
Let's see, the ones that are really accelerating quite well are the 1965 and 1966 427 cars. Uh, let's see, number one condition, they're up 20%. Number two condition, they're actually, number three condition, they're actually up more, 23%. That's kind of weird. All right, and then the ones that are declining, let's see, the SC cars are declining. Now, I took a note here. So it's one of the rare, uber rare, semi-competition cars, the SC. The model started out life as a race spec car, but Shelby America never managed to build the mandated run of 100 cars for homologation purposes. So some of the cars that were built, 29 in total, were converted to road use. Now, one of the reasons these might be down a little bit, uh, they're actually up a little bit if they're in number one condition, they're down a little bit in number three condition, is that they had a huge ramp up. So if you could get a 427, streetcar for say 1.5 to 2.2 million dollars to get a an sc was like three and a half to four million dollars so they might have just come down a little bit because they were really high there for quite a while now if you remember the 2000 series are the small block cobras the 3000 series are the big big block cobras and do you remember what the 4000 series were those were the ones that were made by shelby as continuation cars like in the 80s now, those are really down a lot. Those are the ones that are down double digits for some reason right now in the last three years. Number one condition down 24% and in number three condition down 21.3%. So I'm not sure why. They have been selling pretty strong, so it might be just that they've kind of plateaued and they're coming back down to earth a little bit. One of the things that might be affecting that is that the replicar makers like Super Performance, ERA, they're starting to make some really good quality replicars in Kirkham. So, you know, those are cheaper than the 4000 series, so that might be driving the price down just a little bit. Okay, what are we going to do now? Oh, okay, now we're going to do the ultimate Shelby garage. So this is where I go through my top 10 Shelbys. This isn't a best of, but it's going to be pretty close. These are what I would call my top 10 Shelbys of all time that, if I had all the money in the world, would be in my Shelby garage. All right. First, thanks off to RM Sotheby's for all of these images, except for one, which I will call out. So the first one is a 1965 Shelby 289 rack and pinion car. Like I mentioned before, these are the ones you want to drive. I love these. They have the straight pipes out of the back. This one on the video right now is the one I would want. Silver with red interior. It doesn't have the flared crazy fenders or the side exhaust like the big 427 cars. It doesn't have the hood scoop. I like it because it's pretty simple, quick and just awesome. So if you look at the average aggregate value for these, this is condition number three, $902,000. They also reference the sports car market medium price guide and it is $962,000 uh, per SCM. All right, let's see. They only made 150 of these, so fairly rare car. All right, the next one is its big brother, the 1965 Shelby Cobra 427 SC. I would like to have one of those. Now, this is the one that's the opposite. It's got the side pipe. It's got the flared fenders. It's got the hood scoop. It's got all the aggressive stuff going on. So these are just really crazy and cool. As I mentioned, it stands for semi-competition, and they only made 29 of these. So these are extremely expensive. Now, I think, uh, let's see, for Haggerty average value, $1.9 million. Now, that's in number three condition. So number one would probably be up there around 3 or $4 million. Sports car market, 2.9, so that one's quite a bit more. All right, this one has the 427, 485 horsepower. Uh, like I said, only 29 of these produced. All right, the third car in my ultimate Shelby garage is the 1965 GT350. 
honestly, if I could only have one, this is probably the only the one I would have. Now, this car is actually coming up for auction in Scottsdale this coming week. Uh, so that's where I got these pictures. Now you can see how cool this car is. They all were white, and like, like I said, the blue stripes were optional. You can see the incredibly gorgeous Krager mag wheels it has on it, and you can see the side exhaust exiting out in front of the rear wheels, all per factory. So those are really cool. I'll do a walk around live stream on this, so be, uh, be looking on Instagram for this walk around of this exact car that's in this picture right now. Now let's see, Haggerty average value is $368,000, and for sports car market, it's $401,000. They made 521 of the street versions. All right, the next one, and this is a picture from me. I'm sorry, this is not the one I was thinking of. 1966 GT350H. I would love to have one of the Hertz cars. Uh, I would love to have one of the non-black and gold cars, but I would take a black and gold car. They just look wonderful. This car was actually at our Elkhart auction. Haggerty average value is $128,000. Sports car market is $137,500. Now, this one's pretty interesting because the first 80 cars were manual. So I would want one of the first 80 cars, and they probably were all black. I can't imagine they had started changing out colors that early in the production run. So I would love to have one of those. This is one that had was one of the first 80 cars. It sold at Elkhart. I thought it was an aggressive estimate. The estimate was like 225 to 245 because uh, it has a replacement block. The block was from a 1967 Hypo Mustang, so the correct block for sure. And I want to say it rang the bell about 235. It was really, really strong, really good looking car. So that would be, I think, the fourth spot in my garage. Now, the fifth spot, this is the one that was from Mecham. This is one of the four GT350 convertibles. This is the green one. I believe it's unrestored original paint. I saw it in person, took some pictures, posted it on Instagram. Really cool car. I don't care for these wheels. These are the factory correct wheels. I just don't care for them. Uh, so I take that back. 1965 might not be the only one I would want. I think it would be the 1966 red GT350 convertible. Okay, let's see. Haggerty puts the price of this one at $740,000. And Sports Car Market did not have this one listed in their database. All right, next. Okay, the big block. 1960, look how beautiful that picture is. 1967 GT500, Haggerty average value $155,000, sports car market $165,000. This is the exact spec I would want. I would want these, I think they're called Magstar wheels. I would want this beautiful light blue, silver blue. I would want the white stripes. The only difference is I would want white interior. How beautiful would that be? That would be really, really cool. All right, the next one is one of the cars that has appreciated a lot in the last three years, the 1970 GT500 convertible. Now, if you're looking at this on the live stream, you can see this is probably the color I would want, Gulfstream Aqua. Again, white interior would be cool, but I would take black. And this is the 1970 model. You can tell by the black stripes on the hood, as well as the extra little black air dam at the bottom, or chin spoiler, sorry. Beautiful car. Haggerty has this one at $154,000. Sports car market at $152. All right. This is a curveball. So I'll have to talk about this one for a little bit. This is one I would have in my garage in the eighth spot. This is a 19, I'm sorry, this is a 2003 Shelby Series 1. These have gotten beaten up so much over the years, and they've been trading at about $100,000 for about since the day they came out. I think they're about to go up in price. I think they're finally getting their due. 
So design work on the Shelby Series 1 began as early as 1994 and ultimately became only the only car designed completely from scratch by Carroll Shelby. While it didn't turn into the successor of the original Shelby Cobra as planned, it did have some impressive performance credentials behind it by the time it launched, including an aluminum chassis and a top speed of 170 miles per hour. Most people remember the car for what it wasn't, unfortunately. Original specifications called for a carbon fiber body, a rear-mounted Corvette C5 transaxle, a total weight of 2,600 pounds and 500 horsepower. But the reality was somewhat more modest. The car's weight increased to nearly 3,000 pounds as engineers adjusted to EPA mandates. And the installed engine ended up being the Oldsmobile Aurora's V8 motor, which offered 320 horsepower and a 0-60 to 60 sprint in 4.4 4 seconds, which was incredibly fast for the time. Instead of an Oldsmobile V8 modified for the Indy Racing League as promised. Let's see, from the time the model was announced, buyers lined up and plunked down deposits on a price that started at $85,000 in 1998, then successive, successfully rose to about $140,000. Production delays and the shift in the model's performance proved to be too much for some early enthusiasts, though, and a number of buyers sued to get their deposits back. Ouch. The picture had brightened somewhat in about 2000 when a Vortex supercharged version was announced. Performance now approached the original claims with 450 horsepower, 0 to 60 miles per hour in 3.7 seconds, and a quarter mile run in 12.4 seconds. However, the base price had now risen to $175,000 and the supercharged model was $195,000. Ouch. Okay, all that to say, I would want one of the supercharged versions. So today, the Shelby Series 1 elicits a mixed reaction. Some enthusiasts recognize it as a true sports car with a Shelby pedigree, while others bemoan what could have been. Setting aside the backstory, however, the Series 1 can provide a lot of fun and exclusivity, and it seems to have run its course of depreciation. Hey, what did I just say? Lots of low-mile examples exist, but astute buyers will be more concerned with whether or not the car is equipped with a blower. So I would want one of the ones, probably 2003, that came with a blower. So that would be my choice. 249 of these were produced. I think they look pretty good. That's my choice. All right, number nine. Two more to go. The 1967 Ford GT40 Mark III. Now this picture is not of a Mark III. This is of one of the more race-prepped ones. But picture the Mark III without all the fancy uh, paint job, and that will be it. So now this is one of the seven that were produced for road use. So you could actually drive them around on the street. That's one of the seven I want. There is one at the Peterson Museum. So if you ever go there, you can check it out. Now, let's see. Sports Car Market. I'm sorry. Haggerty had this one at $3 million. And Sports Car Market had it, had it at $7.65 million. I think the difference there is Haggerty had it dialed into the Mark III, while a Sports Car Market had it just as the total you know, GT40 medium price for the Mark 1s, 2s, and 4s. Okay, the last one, and now this one's kind of a cheat because this one is not a Shelby, so I'm putting a non-Shelby in my Ultimate Shelby Garage, but I'm pretty sure all of you will agree. This is the 2006 Ford GT Heritage Edition. So every once in a while, a large company exhibits the flexibility and engine necessary to successfully bring a low-volume niche car to market. The Dodge Viper is one example and the Ford GT is another. 
The Ford GT was born during a wave of fresh thinking rebirth and retro-inspired nostalgia that at Ford that saw several old nameplates reappear into the production line. So basically, this took the looks of the Ford GT40 from the 1960s and took it into today. And they're wonderful cars. They have a great V8 rear engine, 550 horsepower. They're beautiful inside and out. They initially sold for around $150,000, and now they're selling for two hundred fifty dollars to $400,000. It's kind of crazy. So I would want the Heritage Edition. Honestly, I like any of them, but Heritage Edition's more of a value play or investment play. Uh, I just think they're really, really cool. And this one is a 2006 with Gulf Blue and Orange Heritage paint scheme that harkened back to the GT40's glory days at Le Mans. Now, like I said, this is a V8, 330 cubic inch, 550 horsepower, really cool, amazing car. So Heritage Edition, they made 343 of those. So the total amount to put these cars in your ultimate Metron built garage based on Haggerty's average value is $9,666,902. Let's just round that up to $10 million. And sports car market would have priced these at $13,659,500, almost $14,000. So a lot of money to put, either the, to put these in your garage by either measure. Now I know that's a lot. I appreciate your time today and your patience with me as I do my first live stream. Uh, look forward to future events with all of you. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.